So last night I went to my little cousin's uh, ISA festival. It's actually not called ISA anymore. Um, it was called ISA for like 15 years, but they just changed it to SASA, to South Asian Student Association. Um, and they just had their little festival where, you know, all these high schoolers are just dancing and singing and whatnot. And uh, my, my cousin is an officer for the club. I think he's like historian or something. And um, he was telling me that like all the officers got beef <laughs> and he was supposed to go up to do the fashion show. But they like didn't call his name when it was his time. So like the, the MC called out Noor, but like he didn't come out. He's in the bathroom or something because <laughs> they didn't know they were calling men out. And like all of his officers purposely like personally didn't tell him that it was his time so now they got you know a bunch of beef and he's he's not stressing about it. he's like yo i don't care it's high school which is very grown up for a high school to say um but ani i want to ask you you ever have any like high school beef with anybody <laughs> oh man high school is a long time back for me let me think uh i definitely had beef in high school for sure not with no brown people yeah. um no because that's not really my style i definitely had beef in high school i'm trying to think um yeah, I had some smoke, but it was like, I don't know. It, it's, it's, whatever. it's really not worth talking about. Yeah, I was, I was. Gotcha. You know, I think. Gotcha. We grown up. Yeah. It, it's nothing significant. <laughs> it was like, you know, somebody got mad. I didn't pass the ball during, during gym, you know. Oh, man. He probably That's couldn't score anyway. And uh, for real, you know, I, I used to rap in high school. So I had like these fake rap beefs with other kids, which was cool. Like we used to battle <laughs> and do, do fun stuff, but. I had I never had no real beef till I was an adult, but that's you know that's part of life. <laughs> till I was an adult, for sure. <laughs> that's where it was. All it started. like was it like in your school? Was it in your school beef, or was it like you were beefing with other schools and stuff? Nah, it was it was it was not no 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 interstate. The beef. whole district. I oh, got you. <laughs> yeah, got nah, you. I'm not I'm not a big beef person, man. There's a there's a uh, there's just a code that I grew up on, which is like you know you can't give everything a voice, and so I'm really like I like that. To, to get me going, it takes a lot. Once I'm going, it's over for people, but it really takes <laughs> right. me a lot to get going. So, for yeah. That's I got smart. you. Mo, you had any beef? I had beef. But, you know. Any beef? Any smoke with nobody? Uh, yeah. Not with that time. There was beef. I remember we the, got barely this one girl about. pushed me once in, in the cafeteria Damn. because I had beef. What you do? I don't even remember what, what you I do? did. I didn't do anything to her specifically. I think there was something said to her friend that she thought I did. But I was like, I'm just like a little girl oh, <laughs> pushing man. me. You were subtweeting. Yeah. No, yeah, it's definitely crazy. not subtweeting. But yeah, I'm done with that. Thank you guys so much for joining us again on our podcast, beautiful podcast, difficultish uh podcast about South Asian narratives. My name is Mashnoon. I am Mahua. And today we're joined by a very, very, very special guest, someone who I've been following for a really long time. We have Ani Sanyal. He is an entrepreneur investor hustler he's done a bunch of stuff real estate digital marketing will be here forever but most importantly he's a brown man in america who is just uh you know put his life in his own hands and is chasing his dreams so ani thank you so much for joining us today thank you guys i appreciate the time and, and having me on i'm so excited to have you because i feel like everything that you do you do it so like gracefully and you make it seem like everyone can also achieve it because with the talent and the skills that you have you are you like share it with everyone as well so i really like that about you because a lot of people in society they kind so of giving man they gatekeep it so you do so many things at the same time but you don't make it look hard at all you know like i don't see you ever complaining about it you're always like passionate about it you're always like humble about it and you're always grateful about it which i really appreciate 
That's deep. Thank you. Um, I think that's been a, a probably a core focus of mine over the last couple of years, just kind of maturing, you know, my brand and, and thinking about what really matters. So I appreciate that. I could talk about that all day, but <laughs> I'm happy that uh, some people are able to see that. That's real. Um, I wanted to talk about when I first came across you. It was actually when I was like, I was like 18 or 19 years old. It was your TED talk. Um that you did at Boston University, which is uh, which is funny because the two of us actually just spoke at Boston University like two weeks ago uh, for Congrats. Basha D. Bush. Thank you. It was for a mo- for Mother Language Day for Bangladesh. Um, we had the opportunity to speak out there. So funny how funny how we're here. But um, you know, I feel like I heard your TED talk at a at like a super important time in my life when like I needed to hear the message that you were preaching. Just about like you know, I was at, I was at a point in my life where like I was trying to figure out like okay, I got I got these things that I love doing, but I also got these things that like I have to do, but I also got to make bread, but I also got to do this and that, and just um you know finding the uh the crossroads between all that can be difficult, especially when you're a kid. Um, so hearing that from somebody that you know looks like me at a time when I needed it, it uh, it meant a lot, you know. That's incredible. Um, I didn't know that. That's 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 yeah. real. Thank you. I'm trying to think of when I first saw you in the scene because like I grew up in New York. I was born and raised here, but I think I first saw you like when you were with Anik Khan and how you were managing him and you were with him. And then obviously when Kolkata Jai became such a big thing in New York City, I think that was the initial time. And I just saw that you were with Anik, but then you're also like managing Kolkata Chai and doing all the behind the scenes for that business. And I looked more into you and I was like, how is he doing all of these things at the same time? You know, so I, I really like as a business owner myself, I really appreciated seeing the transparency and also just seeing, you know, um, someone like you that is also born and raised here. But having like a South Asian background, having uh, you're Bengali American, right? Or do you say Indian American? Do you say Bengali American? Ah, uh, that's a good question. It's, it's so like bifurcated for us. Yeah, right? I am. I am an Indian American, but I'm Bengali culturally. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, Kolkata Bengali, if you will. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's uh, I don't want to say it's the same thing to me because that's not the appropriate thing to right. say. But you know, culturally, it's it's such an interesting point that we intersection that we live at, mm-hmm. right? When you're culturally one thing but but nationality is something else but yeah i guess i identify as an indian american just for like the the factual right, part of it right yeah i think a lot of people now mix up like bengali and bangladeshi but yeah i think uh, you're in indian american it was just really inspiring to see someone like you you know coming up with like the same type of upbringing as so many of us and just doing what you're doing and and you know killing it it was amazing i think that uh that difficulty with like figuring out how to navigate like culture and identity starts really early for like a lot of us like i i grew up I, I was born in new york but i grew up like mostly in orlando and i grew up with a big uh spanish community with not many people nor any people that look like me around me um so i ran around saying i was Guyanese and dominican my whole life and i know mo grew up with a lot of indian people and not very many bengali people um i want to hear a little bit about your upbringing in boston um how do you like boston we we weren't big fans of boston i mean we were very like centered towards like downtown it was a lot of white folk they we had good cannolis the cannolis, <laughs> the were, cannolis good. were good but i want to hear a little bit i want to hear a little bit about uh your upbringing um in boston it's what did like assessment yeah <laughs> that, assessment that's all you got boston. um <laughs> nice, nice yeah, pier uh, nice yeah, harbor. Uh, right there's not too beer. much going on uh, not too much but, going on there um i yeah. actually was born so i was born in, in western massachusetts pretty far from boston four or five hours from boston my dad was a grad student um he moved here a typical first gen immigrant story well first 
he was in first gen. Typical immigrant story. My parents moved here in the winter of 87. Um, and the way I grew up was, I don't want to say it was difficult because I had two loving parents that really were willing to go to the mat for me every day and, you know, do whatever is necessary for the family. So I could never sit here and say I had a difficult childhood. I mean, it was hard objectively, but I knew that I had the love of my parents. And I think that's something that um, you can see in the way that I moved today. You know, I try to reciprocate that every, every day, um, really kind of living out a life that they would be proud of, even though I'm independent of them in, in every single way, it's important to honor them in that way. Um, but I grew up in Western Mass. Uh, you know, we grew up in this one bedroom apartment. Uh, the story I think that could define my childhood is we had this mustard colored couch in our living room. And, you know, I was three, four years old and it was just a regular couch to me. I'd throw Hot Wheels off of it. I'd, you know, try to crawl under it. Um, and it had three legs. And so one leg was always on a soup can or, or something, you know, some a stack of books or something. And I thought that was normal. I was a kid. And, uh, you know, years, years later, decades later, I found out that my dad had actually dragged that uh, couch out of a trash can, out of like a dumpster, because he saw it and he was like, I need a couch. And he was like, this looks fairly clean. Like, I don't know why somebody would throw it out. Oh, it has three legs. I could work with that. You know, and and I think about that moment for him, you know, being an adult, um, really putting your pride to the side and being like, you know, this is what I can afford or what I can do. And that's what I'm gonna do for my family. I think that is a very... Um, just a very unique and descriptive story of kind of how we grew up. You know, it wasn't a lot physically and materially, but there was a lot in terms of love and, 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 you know, that type of, um, that type of security. So I would say, you know, I grew up financially insecure, but I grew up very emotionally secure. And that I think has shaped a lot of my story. Um, so I don't know if that answers all the questions, but yeah, I moved to, you know, a suburb outside of Boston, um, probably in my, I can't remember early teens, you know, around, around then maybe late, whenever, nine, 10 years old and, uh, never felt comfortable until I moved out of, uh, out of that state, um, out of Massachusetts. And part of what you guys alluded to was definitely a factor. I think one thing I'm assuming you guys are under 30 and I'm going to go ahead and say, you know, between 25 <laughs> to 30, if that, um, life today is very different for, for people of color. Yeah. For, for first generation immigrant kids, because there are representative points out there, right? I don't really like the word representation because I think it's very two dimensional, but we'll talk about that later. Um, you could go up, you could turn on the TV and see someone that looks like you. Yep. If you got, if we fast forward 20, 30 years ago, when I grew up, there was none of that. Um, and, and so identity was a very difficult thing because there was nothing to model around. And to your point, you know, you said you grew up around you know, Spanish folks and, and, you know, you had to take a certain identity. Um, for me, it was just like, you know, America was binary. It was white or black. And so there wasn't even like a, you know, a, a relevant uh, reference point. And so I grew up in that, you know, in that, uh, that struggle to find identity. Um, and looking back, I think a lot of things that I do now are still, are, are ways of living out my inner child, you know, Coca the Chai is such a, um, it's such an aggressive, you know, way to be like, no, this is our culture. We're going to put a flag down for it. You know, yeah. Anik Khan is such a, a billboard literally for um, South Asian creativity, you know, and, and 
I've been behind that for years, you know, and I own that because I know growing up, that's all I wanted to see. So long-winded answer to say, you know, I think a lot of what I do today is, uh, is meant to kind of heal that, that part of me as a kid that was very confused or just frustrated that there was nobody, you know, that I could, that I could see in my story or share my story to. No, I really like the story about you saying how, like, even though you didn't grow up with much, you, your parents never made you feel like you didn't have enough and they never made you feel like, you know, you're like starving. Like they still gave you everything that they could, even if they didn't have the means to do it. And I think that shows in a lot of, you know, children of immigrants, like that shows in our work as well, where we grow up with more respect and more gratitude towards them. And our work is dedicated to them because we know that they tried their best. And um, like what on top of what you said about like healing your inner child and healing that like broken self that you had when you were younger because you didn't have that, um, you know, the people around you that look like you. It is I feel like that's what drives so many of us now because we're like, oh, we didn't have this growing up. So now we're doing it for our younger self, but also helping the people after us, which I love and appreciate so for sure. much. For sure. Yeah. And I think like going back to what you said about, you know, I, I want to hear a little bit more about why you don't like the word representation. Um, But before that, you know, we're we're 24. So we only grew up with like Baljeet from Phineas and Ferb or we saw like, what else did we see? Just like, like random like ass fingers. Ravi like Jesse. Ravi from, from Jesse. So, so like we had, we had something to work out. We had Apu from, from Simpsons. Like we had something and, you know, I, I love seeing like Apu and Simpsons and like, you know, I love seeing like these, these figures. Cause I remember when I was like a, a baby baby, I didn't have nobody. And, you know, I can't imagine for, for you, like through like your, your actual aging years and teenage years, like not having anybody to really connect to. Um, and I know that, you know, you, you said that America at the time was very like white and black and obviously with us not being able to connect at all to the white side um i know hip-hop culture has been you know something really pivotal on your journey um i i want to hear a little bit more about how that's kind of affected you um what tenants you've gotten out of you know being embraced by hip-hop culture black culture um you know you eventually moved to new york city to to follow you know your your dreams within the music industry um i want to hear a little bit about that and also what what about the word representation that you don't like yeah, I'll tackle the first part first. I think, you know, I'm very open about kind of being indebted to hip hop culture and as an extension, black culture. I think black culture in America is um it is one of the most dynamic cultural and creative and and commercial forces I think that we've ever seen. I think it scares the establishment, which is why, you know, um the the implicit racism of our structure is is even more intensified because people can't accept that black culture is as powerful as it is and i think growing up for me um yeah i mean in a way it was like you know if you're not white then where's the next reference point you know and, and hip-hop mm-hmm. music specifically jay-z and, and and that idea of like entrepreneurship or just owning something and, and being able to earn a living off of it and obviously building a brand around it i mean i think i was probably I don't know, 12 years old when I was like, no, that is what I want to do, you know? And, and in some ways, decades later, nothing has changed, but um, hip hop culture is huge for me. I think, I think, like I said, I think the, the creativity of black culture is something that everybody borrows from whether they want to accept it or not, or realize it or not, or acknowledge it or not. And um, 
I hope that changes, you know, in our lifetime. I hope that we're able to, you know, kind of find equal footing in, in society for that. But yeah, I mean, let's talk about hip hop. I mean, this is the 50 year anniversary of hip hop. I just went to the um yeah. the, the the gallery at the photographs the other day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was it was just like it's so interesting for me because I grew up, my parents were like, turn that music off, pull your pants up. You know, right. what are you doing? This is terrible. Like, you know, my dad, who is you know, we keep it real. He's and he's he's an intellectual to the core, but he's also very elitist in a lot of ways. And he was just like, yeah. "This is garbage," you know. And we've talked about I've, I've talked about this with him, so he knows what time it is. But he was yeah. just like, "This is garbage," and I was like, "Nah, it's not." There's a lot of struggle and stories and and things being told here that you're not able to see because you're just focused on them cursing or the fact that you know black people may make you uncomfortable because that's what you were taught growing up, you know. And yeah. I wasn't ready for that conversation as a 12 year old, but you know, in my thirties, that's a conversation we have all the time, but long story long, you know, hip hop culture changed America. You know, there's a book called the tanning of America by uh, Steve Stout, who was a music manager, marketing executive. And I read that book in my twenties and it's something that I recommend, you know, everybody read, especially if you, you know, consume hip hop culture, even nowadays, I feel like culture is hip hop culture, but that's a conversation for another day. But tanning of America basically talks about how, from a marketing and branding and, and cultural consumption side, hip hop has changed the fabric of America forever, you know? And yeah. my dad used to think, or people used to think it was a fad. It was, you know, it was garbage. It was something that, you know, it was only for the kids. And now, you know, fortune 500 companies build their marketing and language and copy and all that brand identity from hip hop culture. Mm-hmm. So um, I think, not to give myself credit, you know, but I just think being open-minded, you know, and not letting my parents kind of dictate or um, control what I was going to consume, um, partially credited on them. You know, they were like, well, whatever, you know, we, we got to let this kid do what he wants. And part yeah. of it is on me to be like, nah, I'm not going to let you talk to, you know, a, a certain culture, a certain people, or a certain idea that way. So yeah, hip hop culture taught me everything. Um, it taught me about identity in, in, in the sense of telling your story regardless of what that is, if it's not the mainstream narrative, uh, taught me how to hustle, taught me about entrepreneurship, basically taught me how to uh, take an idea, build influence, and then sell things back with that influence, which is, you know, what I do today. Um, and it really taught me about what's possible, you know, like you could you could put words together, which would lead to a song, which would lead to you performing that song, which would lead to making money off that song, um, you know, and, and, I break it down very simplistically, but that's a, that, that's basically creation, right. And, and, and kind of the, the ripple effect of what you create. So yeah, hip hop culture changed me forever. I think one of the main points of connectivity for me growing up was just like the, the conversation around struggle. Um, Cause you know, the struggle isn't the same, but you know, we, we both struggle in our own respective ways and, you know, the conversation of struggle wasn't something that I was able to have with the fair skin. It was something that, you know, things that I was going through, I was only really able to connect to people that look like me or have like the same shade as me. And when I, you know, same kind of thing, like growing up, I heard this and that about when I was listening to rap or when I was watching battle rap, like on YouTube. And my main selling point to my mom was like, yo mom, like, like mom, why are they yelling? Why are they cursing? Why are you, why are you mad at each other? I'm like, they're not mad at each other. They're just mad. Like, they're just angry, you know, because like, yeah, white people, fair skin go about having these conversations in a different way. But this is how these people react after years and years of 
whatever, you know? And so that, that concept of struggle was something that I was really able to connect to growing up. And I grew up on a bunch of battle rap and I grew up, you know, that manifested into like, I started doing spoken word poetry uh, when I was in high school and it was like super rap heavy. It was literally rap, but like, I was too scared to yell. I was, I was a baby back then. So I was basically rapping, but I was like saying calmly and whatever. Um, but uh, I know one of your favorite artists and one of my favorite artists, um, Snipsy Hustle. And one on an interview that he did a while ago, he said this quote that I really liked and it's kind of been like my mantra for my whole life moving forward. He said, um, I'm gonna butcher it, but he said, um, the... Is it, is, it the, is it the war with the world one? No, it's uh, about like the delusional man. Damn, mm-hmm. I forgot the term. Mm-hmm. He said mm-hmm. he he basically said like, um, all all For necessary prog- progress cha- depends on the irrational man. I I yeah. literally butchered it. I knew I was going to, um, but I I want to use that quote as a segue into um, you know, you going into your mid twenties, you were working, you were hustling, and you were kind of giving up a lot to to make your dreams come true. Um, how did you go about? kind of sacrificing your early your mid-20s to the hustle to entrepreneurship um to business how did you go about having these types of conversations with your parents telling them hey this is going to take a while um and i know you wanted me to go this route but i'm i'm not doing that and and you know how valuable is it to just be delusional yeah that's such a great question it when i think about it sometimes now i'm like was I crazy? I was definitely crazy, delusional, if you will. Wow, what a start! I mean, you said a, you said a lot of great. Sorry, first of all, my fault, my fault. No, you're good. I'm just, I'm just going through. We didn't. We're gonna get to the representation question. Just make a note, yeah, and then we'll come back yo, to it. Damn, I literally forgot about that. I'm sorry. It's all good. It's but, all good. Yeah, yeah. Battle rap. I'm gonna ask you after we get off air who you listen yeah, to. But I think me. battle. I think battle rap should be in museums. I think it's. I think it's absolutely one of the one of the greatest art forms, and and I think people will be studying it. You know, five ten years from now. You you got um, a favorite? Before we move forward, you got a favorite? Man, I mean, I do, but I don't know what era you're... T- so I, my favorite's Hitman, Sue Surf. That's when um, I started. Oh, he loves Sue okay. Surf. Oh yeah, Press God. 9. I, oh yeah, I was there. I, be, I was a baby. All I listen to is Surf now. I don't know why. Me and my brother have been listening to Surf nonstop yeah. for like four Free weeks. the Wave. It's all we do, free to wave. Unfortunately, yeah, that, man, I don't want to get into it. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to no, get out of a Rico good. case. Let's we're... just put that. But yeah, surf is, surf is a beast. Um, Oh, yeah, there's there's a lot of tangents we could take. So my 20s. Um, yeah, yeah, your 20s. I will be honest. My 20s were some of the most definitive, exhilarating, incredibly um, rewarding, but difficult times I've, I've ever been through. And it, a lot of things obviously contributed to that. But I think about now where I am in my 30s and life is difficult, but it's different. And what I mean by that is I think in my twenties, it was time to show and prove, you know, like if I, if I wanted to do this, if I wanted to live this full life, um, creatively and and entrepreneurially, which I knew I wanted to do since I was 12, I had to put numbers on the board when I was 20 and, you know, in my twenties, meaning I had to figure out how to pay for, you know, myself. I had to figure out how to create income for, you know, the future. And I had to, I had to figure out how to build in a foundation that would allow me to even be alive in my thirties, if you will. Right. And, and 
it sounds so do or die, but that's what it felt like for me. And and the problem was there was so much tension because there's so many dichotomies and, and I'll get into that. Meaning um, I went to college begrudgingly. And what I, what I mean by that is I'm very grateful that I went to school. I'm very grateful that my parents, you know, knew the importance of it and kind of pushed me to definitely follow through on it. But I knew at 18 that I didn't really want to go to college, meaning I had a I had a conviction, the same conviction I had that when I was 12 that I have now when I'm 34 was like, nah, I'm going to do this in my own way. And I have this just incredible level of conviction. I think it's, it's a divine thing. But I knew that school was not going to let me get to where I wanted to get to. I knew that going in. And so I really struggled with just accepting like, man, I got to do four years here. It's going to cost me and my family X amount of money. It's going to be, you know, this burden financially. But then I ended up getting into NYU, which was like, obviously we all, you know, and this is a long time ago. And today NYU, the brand has even grown more, but like, what a privilege, you know what I mean? What a privilege to even be able to have that opportunity. And um, I say that now, I say that today, kind of being on the other side of it. At the time I was like, I need to get to New York. So NYU sounds fine, you know, sounds great. It could have been CUNY. It could have been whatever. I just, I knew that I had to be in New York again, conviction, but where I was going with all this is I went to NYU and again, really struggled to figure out like, what was I going to do with my time here? Because there's this academic pressure, right? There's this, there's social pressure. And then there's, then there's me and my conviction where it's like, now nah, I'm here to figure out what I'm doing with my life. I'm not, I could care less if I make friends. I'm still that way, respectfully. Like my social life is is whatever. I have an incredible group of people in my life, but I'm not here for that. We could shake hands and be friends later. I'm, I got to figure out what my business, like I got to figure out my life. Because if I don't figure out what I'm doing, I'm going to be, I feel like I'm in a prison, you know? And this is what I was thinking about when I was 18, 19, 20. I wasn't really going to parties. Like I, you know, obviously we all, we all go out, we all have that era, but I wasn't really out like that. Like I was just always trying to figure things out. And, um, and so to, to your point about sacrifice, like that was just built in because I knew that in order to get to where I had to get to, I had to sacrifice. And today the life I lead is all built on things that I did when I was 19 and 20. And it sounds crazy. So I'll delve into it a bit. Um, in school, I studied economics. I studied finance. Um, I did like a double major with with Stern, the business school, because I knew that in order to make money, I need to be close to money. And what that did was it put me in a B-school environment. I was around a lot of sharp kids, um, you know, getting involved with the stock market and investing and not really knowing anything as a 19, 20-year-old, but at least I'm getting exposure to it. Um, I started working at a hedge fund part-time and I was going to school in the evening. So I'd work nine to five during the day and then I'd go to school in the evening. Or I'd work my schedule around this part-time analyst job I had at a hedge fund when I was 19, 20, maybe I couldn't get into the club. I might've been 20, 21. I can't remember, but I used to, I did that. And I was like, you know what? I'm making enough money here where I can actually move. I don't need to live in a dorm. Like I could save, you know, that cost for whatever. So I used to live on 19th and Park Avenue when I was 19, 20 years old. Wow. I, had mad, I had mad roommates, you know, it was a whole situation, but I used to live on Park Ave and my office used to be on 32nd and Park Avenue. So I used to walk 10 blocks, this like this, this dynamic that was like, okay, this hip hop kid is now going into this, like, you know, finance environment. 
then I would leave the office. And if I didn't have class or even after class, I'll go to the studio and I would go make music or be around my creative friends. I'd be in Canarsie at 2 a.m. on a Wednesday and, you know, have to get back to Park Avenue on, on Thursday morning. You know, this journey. is like, this is, it was wild times in the hood. Like it's a different era, right? New York 10, yeah. 20 years ago. What, what, year, what year is this? Just for some context. Yeah, it's, oh, it's oh, eight. Oh, eight. Mm. Oh, seven, oh, eight. And so long story long, I, I, I learned this finance world. My dad is so proud. He's so happy. You know what I mean? I got this button up shirt every day and I'm, and I'm basically what I'm doing is I'm assessing my risk. I'm like, yo, do I need, do I need to do this or do I need to be creative? And I'm trying to figure out what the risk reward is. Long story long, I, I, I did about a year and change in that situation. And I, one day I just quit. I walked away from Park Avenue. I went and lived in Borough Park, Brooklyn, in this illegal apartment <laughs> with my homie because it was 500 yeah. bucks a month for two people. Yeah, and wow. we could make music in that apartment. And 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 so what was going on is during the day, I'd be in class, or in the evening, I'd be in class with with my finance homies. These guys were going to UBS, Goldman Sachs. You know that they were they were going into private equity, and I was in the same circle as them and we're about to graduate and that's what they're doing and they're like yo what are you doing <laughs> and i was like man I'm rapping i'm ra- i don't know you know like i don't yeah. know what i'm doing and i remember I, I got this consulting job offer which was some bullshit no sorry the curse <laughs> it was some it was some shit you know i mean i just yeah. got it and the person the, the, the ceo at the at an interview he was like man i looked you up on youtube you got all this <laughs> music stuff going on this is 08 09 Damn. 2010 somewhere in that era you're on like, YouTube I see you got then. music, man. Come on, content boys early. He was like, I see you <laughs> making music, you're doing all this thing. Like, do you really want a job? And I still remember this. I still remember this thing. He was like, Do you are you gonna work this job? Like, this is before I got hired. And I was like, No, sir. Like, I come from immigrant parents, like, I'm ready to work, and I'm lying. I know I'm yeah. lying. And, you know, yeah. and, and I still remember I was like, nah, I want this job. I quit that job two weeks after I started. <laughs> there we go. And I, I was, I'm 21 years old. I've just graduated. My friends are all in banking or private equity or, you know, some, some decent paying tech job. And I have no job. I'm living in Bushwick at this time. Shout out, you know, my whole Bushwick crew back then. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to be creative. It's 2010. It's a recession. Yeah. And I had no option but to figure it out you know so i just want to paint i know as i'm saying a lot but yeah, i want to paint the context for how desperate i was to be creative and live life on my own terms and fast yeah. forward a bit you know three four months so basically what i'm doing is i'm, I'm an artist at this time i'm rapping I'm, I'm producing music i'm managing a group and i'm kind of working with this like larger creative collective in brooklyn um it's called the brooklyn good guys and so we're throwing events we're throwing parties we're making music we're doing little shows and tours and um what I what I didn't mention was in college I had been I actually was the first person in New York to bring Wiz Khalifa to perform so yeah Wiz I was gonna Khalifa bring that up show at the basement of Webster Hall in 2008 and that was organized by me oh the basement the basement and Damn, we have brought bad. we have brought you know I just had just a whole story on the side I'm not <laughs> just cut and paste but basically I was figuring out stuff in music and Wiz had called yeah. me after he's like yo I want you to come on tour with me and so we did a couple you know, we did this like short run with him and I have all these experiences and I still go get this job after graduating. I worked two weeks and I quit and I was like, what am I going to do? And then we had this showcase or I was doing some show in Harlem four or five months after. 
And uh, this guy comes up to me. He's like, yo, like, are you interested in going to Japan for, for, with your group? Like I have this opportunity to go tour in Japan for three weeks. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, what is that? Are you, what are you that like, mean? are you like mid semester right now? No, this is after I graduated. Oh, this so is after. I'm, okay. Gotcha. I'm di- I quit my job. I'm broke. I'm, I'm eating dollar <laughs> tacos and I'm, yeah. I'm basically working random side gigs with my NYU degree just yeah. so I could be creative. And I went to Japan when I was 21 years old with two of my best friends. The trip that, that I basically coordinated as a 21 year old kid where we, we licensed a part of our catalog musically to have this company pay for the entire trip. Um, and we were going for this music festival, whatever. The reason I mentioned this is that moment became the crystallizing moment for me as a creative and entrepreneur. I was, I was extremely young and I had done what I thought at that time was my wildest dream, right? I was across the world living off of music with my with my best friends, some of them were my best friends still today. And I was like, oh, nobody could tell me anything. Like, I think I might be onto something. So that's, I don't know if I answered the question. I think I told more stories than, than anything else, <laughs> but I think that's what it was, is I really put it all on the line to follow this conviction I had and I starved and I sacrificed through it. But then I had this moment where I was like, oh, I can't go back. You know, I was, I was 21 and I knew that I could never go back, meaning I could never work a day job. I could never, you know, have somebody tell me what I can or can't do because I had done the impossible. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I I was a brown kid in in Tokyo. It's 20, 2000. (laughs) No, it's 2010. I'm 21 years old. Like it was just, it was just this, this definitive moment for me to be like, nah, you could do this. You know, Mm -hmm. you just got to go up against everything every day, but you can do it if you want it. And uh, I carry that I carry that memory with me really, really close because, yeah, it was real. And and I think um, kind of to sum all that up, that's why I loved your TED talk when I first came across it, because it was kind of portraying that message of like finding our balance between what we love to do and what we have to do is always going to be difficult and it's never going to be clear cut. But we always have to, you know, we, we can't put our passions and our you know, what we truly love fully aside, you know, it, it has to always be there because, you know, I, I think growing up as brown kids, we're always kind of told to like, you know, you can, you can enjoy life after this, this, that, that, and you're 65, you know, then you can whatever, go travel. Um, And I think a lot of us are inherently taught that like, you know, life isn't yet meant to be lived um, until a certain point. And something that the two of us kind of preach on this podcast is like, yo, like take that trip now, like start that book now, like start that business now. Um, Even if you can't start it, like start learning about it, start reading, start educating yourself. Education doesn't have to be through a classroom. It can be on Google. It could be through the people around you. Um, And I think just like that essence of starting is something that a lot of people are scared about. Um, and something else that I want to ask you was, I think you, you said it maybe in like your TED talk or, or some shit, but you said something about um being okay with embracing failure and not necessarily being excited for it, but being okay that it's inevitable and it'll happen. And I think that that's, a, that's something that a lot of us struggle with because we never want to disappoint, you know, the people that have given us life and we never want to disappoint anybody around us. Um, whereas, you know, the people that do choose to put their own life in their hands and pursue an entrepreneurial career. Um, failure, failure 
can can happen. Um, so what kind of input do you have about the, the term failure and how have you kind of became okay with it? Wait, I'm like, I'm listening to all of this just because I find all of this so fascinating. But I also think it's it's so interesting because I think a lot of people, especially in their 20s, they think that they have to have everything figured out. They don't want to fail. They just feel like a failure, especially when they're going through, you know, money problems or anything, you know, that they think they think that they should be successful completely in their 20s and they feel like a failure if they're not. But, you know, listening to your story and seeing that you had so many ups and downs with financial stability and like your career and so many different things and seeing also how much more you're thriving now that you're in your 30s and how you started really pushing towards, you know, what you're doing now in your late 20s and early 30s. I think it's just so hopeful to people that think that they should have everything figured out like right after high school, even in high school when you're like picking your school, picking your college. And it's just very inspiring to hear that, you know, there's life outside of that. And that's why so many people say like in your 30s, that's where your confidence comes out. You know, I think one more thing. That's also why I first really started to like a Nikon was because like he didn't he didn't put out his first record when he was 18 or like when he was like 16, whereas like we're told like like we see all these like successful ass 18 year olds like becoming millionaires where it's like like i I believe like anik started earlier like i remember in like one of the songs on kites he says something about like um i'm 27 sleeping on like a bunk bed like what my sister something like that um so that's something that i've always really really loved about him and and your message as well no thank you for sharing um and i realize i'm 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 telling you guys a bunch of sagas. So I want to keep these answers tighter. Um, the question about failure. I think it's interesting how society and just the human condition we are in now, it we assume that you're not supposed to fail. Failure is actually the default state when you try something difficult or something new. You know, like yeah. you, you know, you will fail. It's not even you can fail, you will fail. Um, and I think that for all the obvious reasons failure scares you know especially first-gen immigrant kids it scares people that don't have uh, a backstop right if you don't have a safety net failure can be really scary but i also think failure is like i said i think it's default i think you fail more times than you succeed and i think you learn a lot more from when you fail than you succeed um one of my mentors and i talk about this a lot in pods is uh one of my mentors had this saying that he used to just always put on me because uh, I was such a stubborn, you know, 20 year old, mid 20 year old kid when I was like, I'm not failing. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, he would always tell me fail to learn, you know, mm-hmm. and that was all he said, he said fail to learn. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And he was basically like, you fail so you can learn. But if you fail to learn from your failures, then you're, you're going to keep doing it, you know? And it was like, you know, this, like this that. deep little thing that I've always kept with me. Um, and I'll just, and I don't know if we're going to get to it, but I'll, I'll, I'll preempt it is like, you know, I'm 34, 10 years ago, my kidneys failed, you know? So when we talk about failure in your twenties, I was 24 years old going up against, uh, not knowing if I would turn 25, you know, so perspective is a big part of my career too. And I just bring that up, you know, as a, as a reminder, like, yeah, for sure. You know, you go on TikTok and you see a 19 year old kid selling sneakers and you're like, damn, like, I wish I could be that. But I was in Tokyo, Japan one year and doing this and doing that. And the next year I, my kidneys ran out, you know, and, and I was like, okay, well, I got to deal with failure in my career or whatever, but I also have to deal with, you know, the expiration of life as a, as a whole. And I think that really gave me perspective to say, you know, 
failure is not what you think it is, right? Failure is not putting out a blog post or putting out a song or putting out a painting that doesn't get the love that it deserves. Failure is not being able to make it to your thirties, right? Failure is your life ending and you not being able to live it in the mean, in the way that you did. And so um, I, I, obviously it's very unique to me and, and I know that doesn't apply for everybody, but that's given me a lot of perspective. No, and I, I really like that. Even even if that specifically doesn't relate to a lot of people, I think everybody can relate to like, you know, when we get into our 20s, it's hard to decipher like career slash work slash passion to just like real life, like what's going on like at home, what's going on with my mother, what's going on with, oh, like now I got a kid, like, oh, now I got blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you you stress so much about what you think is really worth stressing about until something really happens. Um, and, you know, I'm not looking for everybody to have a life-changing experience like that. But, you know, I preach about perspective all the time, whether it was like perspective about growing up in various cultures, various settings, um, growing up with people that don't look like me, um, learning from, you know, traveling, going, whatever. Um, I think perspective is one of the most the most invaluable, um, you know, pieces of human experience. Um, so th- thank you for sharing that as well. Not for sure. And I think everyone has to find perspective in their own scenario, regardless. It doesn't have to be struggle, you know, perspective is yeah. objective. And I think that's something that I think is so important. Would you say that's maybe like one of the, uh, the, the leading kind of pinpoints that you've gotten out of like your mid twenties? Cause I think I personally search for advice on like, just life advice from like 24 25 because i feel like it's a funny time because like like i remember when i graduated like the day after my graduation i was like damn like everybody in my life just told me that like graduate and life would be great but then you graduate you're like damn like (laughs) what the hell do i do like i know absolutely nothing um so what do you feel like or if it was the perspective part um but if not what do you feel like is kind of just like a key takeaway out of like your mid-20s yeah, I mean, I feel like I had I got the cheat code, right? Because I almost lost my life when in my mid twenties. So that level of perspective just allowed me to really build a very like fulfilling life after that, right? That that was I I call it a cheat code nowadays because I'm like, damn, that just gave me so much. It gave me so much, right? Going back, I don't know if I do it again, but you know, right. it gave it gave me a lot. So I, I'm grateful for that. Um, patience, I think, is the other thing. You know, in in our twenties, it's so hard to be patient. I used to be the most impatient person when it came to, you know, career and money and creative and um, nothing happens when you want it to. That's part of life. Um, I think developing a sense of patience and a sense of a long-term gratification cycle is really important. Um, I don't want to pontificate too much, but the life I lead now is a life that I used to think about when I was 16. Right? How am I going to live on my own terms, pay myself, hire my friends, be creative, create work that impacts, not have a boss, you know, all these things that I, I used to literally just think about this when I was 16, 17 years old. I'm 34. What did it take me? 18 years, right? It, mm-hmm. it takes that long to build something, especially if you're coming from zero. If your daddy ain't set up the trust fund and if you don't come from, if you're not inheriting something, whether it's money or, you know, resources or, or infrastructure, if you're not inheriting that, you got to really start at zero and it takes time. Yeah, you could go viral. You know, anybody can go viral. But what do you build after that virality? Are you around 18 years after that? 
that's a test that I think that we're going through right now, right? Our generation right now is, is really like so used to short-term gratification. Mm-hmm. We'll see what's popping in 10 years, you know? But for me, I feel like, man, I had that, you know, I was on stage with Wiz Khalifa, what year are we in? Damn near 15, 20 years ago, right? Like I, I no, nah, not 20, 15 years ago. Like I, I'm still here, you know? And obviously we're, you know, we're in different places and all that. And I didn't make it as a, as a rapper, but I made it you know, in my own, yeah. in my own lane. And I think that mm-hmm. is is something that I really stress, especially for all young creatives is like, yeah, we want to go viral tomorrow, but you still want to be living in your truth 10 years from now. So make sure right. you're building something that, that can resonate and, and last that long. I think the, fa- like the, the step of just taking that risk and just doing something for yourself, not working a traditional job <laughs> is like the hardest part and you following through with it for so many years even if you're not seeing success overnight is the main point you know the fact that you follow through with it i think that's like such a good reminder for people especially now who are expecting that you know viral content overnight it's the the hardest and biggest step is that you chose yourself and you chose that career even when people weren't supporting you and that you're following through with it you know like if you continuously make work just to see if other people appreciate it and just to see if other people are making it viral like you're not going to succeed in the long term because you're just getting validation from other people and it's not even guaranteed you know so i really like that you said that well said no i'd I'd love to segue into just like the kolkata just because you know i'm in new york so i'm always there mushroom whenever he comes from orlando to new york we always yeah yeah i love going out there I get I have my solo dates there. We get the soft serve from there. It's it's amazing. So yeah, I appreciate um, you guys. We really want to talk about like because I also follow your brother Ayan and he always talks about you know the difficult the difficulty with like having a brick and mortar type of business. And he even posted yesterday that I saw where he was like, yeah, all of these streets were one stores before, and now they're like out of business. So I wanted to ask you why you guys followed through with having that type of business instead of just ecom. And what actually made you follow through with that? Like, because have that's a big risk to put down so much money, especially I know you did it right before the, before the pandemic. So, like, what actually made you put down so much money and like believe in yourself and follow through with the papers and you know have a brick and mortar type of business like that? Yeah, great question. I think uh, so. The, the context there is my brother and I ran a creative agency, marketing agency for about six years, five six years before KCC. Um, and just been judicious about saving and spending and kind of figuring out in what our next, what would we invest in, right? Because marketing, uh, well, not marketing, but the agency world is very demanding. It's basically you're on call for your clients all the time. It's hard to scale because you have to scale yourself. And and it was just, it was something that, you know, I enjoy doing, but I could tell that my brother's heart was not all the way in it. And he was kind of too young to be open about it. And so we would you know, we would start to to butt heads about stuff. But when we decided to spin KCC out um, into brick and mortar, we had already been testing at farmers markets, pop up stores, um, food festivals, private catering. You know, private events. We had been doing that for about eighteen months. Mm. So I don't know. A lot of people may or may not know, but my brother used to, you know, every weekend he used to wake up at seven in the morning, walk or drive or take an Uber to a U-Haul uh you know thing load up a u-haul make chai at eight in the morning in the middle of november go stand at a farmer's market for six hours you know and 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 listen to customers and get feedback and 
you know this is like you know this is different like it's real Mm -hmm. like that was a 200 300 cost you know to sign up for the farmer's market every semester or whatever yeah that's how we that's how we started you know and Mm -hmm. and so um by the time we had got to brick and mortar we had so many data points where people you know all the events started getting bigger we started doing bigger you know pop-ups we started doing food festivals with infatuation you know thanks to an econ we started doing this pop-up at todd snyder which is like a menswear store in new york where the line would just get longer and longer and i was like what do we do? The last thing we wanted to do was open brick and mortar, but we had so much data around it. And I think we had, again, conviction around the South Asian diaspora and story needing to have a hub and have a physical place to tell those stories. And so that's what led us to open. Uh, We invested all of our profits from the agency into this thing. And then six months later, we got shut down, you know, and, and my brother and I showed up damn near every day of the pandemic the streets were empty and we would either spend time in the cafe figuring out what was next, figuring out how to ship orders to other people in the country or delivering chai to people around the city. You know, we would drive him and I would drive in his, in his Nissan rogue from Avenue B and third street to like 135th in Harlem for like in, in like 15 minutes. Cause there was no traffic just for $40 so that we could, you know, have, that go towards making rent in those first couple of months. So again, like I'm not, I would have liked it to go a lot of different ways, but we were molded in the fire, like for real. And this is like, you guys know my, my story. So it's like the seventh time I'm being molded in the fire at this point, right? This is like, it's hard, but it's nothing to me. Cause I've, I've, I've seen worse, you know, again, I, I've seen way worse. And so it was just like, complaining is not going to help, you know, crying is not going to help. No one's help. No one's helping us. Um, let's just figure it out. And and so that led to us figuring out, you know, how to do an e-commerce channel, which would ship, you know, chai across the country in, in our chai mix. And um, I think I tweeted the other day, you know, our e-commerce business just crossed a million dollars in the last six months, you know, and again, Congratulations. it took a, while. That's took a while, right? Two, three years later, it took a while. Thank you. But um I don't know. It was like, it was like you either do this or you die. And and, and I've been in that scenario before, you know, and I, I never, I don't want to die, man. I like living, living, so, you know, it's definitely better than dying. And so For sure. that's just where we were at. It was like, it was, it was a very uncomplicated decision to be like, we have to do whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. Did we get burned out? Yes. Did we, you know, did we have a lot of emotional fallout from that? For sure. Did I go to therapy? You know, did I start going to therapy after the pandemic because I had, no idea how to cope with what I had been through. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's real life consequences to hustling and, and making these decisions for your business, which sacrifice your personal well-being. I don't know if people want to talk about that, but that's a real thing, you know? So I say that to say, yeah, there's a lot of fallout from it, but, but we got through it. Um, Coca the Chai obviously for us is, um, I think it's really important for culture to have, a reflection of itself in its truest, you know, form. All of us in this in this chat and, and people around the world, nobody has felt like a brand has authentically spoken to them and met them where they're at in terms of their values and their aesthetic and you know, um, culturally, you know. And I think that we're one of the first brands, especially in this space, we're one of the first first generation immigrant brands to really do that, and so. Mm-hmm. I think, I think the ceiling, you know, there is no ceiling on that if we do it right, but 
um, it's a high pressure, you know, it's a high pressure situation because when you're doing that, A, um, institutional money does not recognize that, right? So the people that are yeah. investing in Starbucks or concepts like that, you know, just mainstream concepts, they're not really, they're not, they don't know what you're doing. So institutional money is not really convinced that you're doing the right thing. Um, there's not enough money in your own community just because you guys are all kind of getting it together. So it's hard to kind of figure out, well, how are we going to fund this? Um, and then the the reality is uh, to make real money, to create real wealth, to be able to actually build something that does have impact, you need to make sure you build something that is relatable to non-South Asian people or people who don't come from the same culture. Mm-hmm. So now how do you tread that balance between creating something that, you know, we call her, we have a customer profile, we call her Midwest Mary. You know, how do we, how does Mary in Kansas, who's 35 with two kids who loves chai and can't wait to make coca the chai every morning, how does how does she still relate to the brand that can also mm-hmm. relate to Mahua in Brooklyn or in Queens or whatever? That's a real mm-hmm. challenge, you know? So yeah. that's the space that I live in now. But again, I'll take that problem over, you know, damn near all the other problems that I've had. So, you know, I, I yeah. like doing that, but that's that's the thesis of what we're building. What I what I really like about KCC is like you are able to bring not only the diaspora together, but you're able to also connect to so many other people. Like I really like the segment that you guys have where like I think it's Ayan who just goes to random people with the chat and they just like ask them how to pronounce it, like where it's from. I just love that just because I feel like it really brings it to a wider audience. But I think so many people support you and you have so much success now because they can relate to your story and they can they're inspired and also there's like a um like vulnerability behind it you know there's a transparency behind it and they also just i don't know it's like it's not like a tacky way to feel represented you know there's actual like meaningfulness behind it so you guys are doing amazing i love your social marketing like you guys you guys are killing it and i'm Thank i'm you. also glad that you know from the beginning especially during the pandemic when so many businesses closed down unfortunately you had the choice of either closing down so early on or just moving forward without a choice, you know? And I really like how you just use that to your, to your um, advantage. Can we, can we have a spicy, can I give a spicy take while, I, while I have, while I have this yeah. moment? I mean, Your I'm going to tie back into representation because you just, you mentioned oh, man. that too. Going back oh, hot take time. Um, no, I mean, first of all, thank you for that. I think, I think hearing that from people in the community means a lot because that, that's ultimately why we built this and sacrificed you know, what we did for it. Um, hot take about representation or just like tying it all together is the, f- the reason I'm not a fan of representation. The reason that I have some, some spiciness towards it is because I think representation has become, become an umbrella for people to do a lot of garbage work. Just sure. a lot of like low hanging fruit stuff that just goes under like, well, this is, you know, in the name of representation. And it's like, like who come match- up? <laughs> nah, I'm not gonna do that, man. Because everybody got their Come unique on, story. <laughs> everybody, everybody got their own story. But I will say, I call. I mean, I call out generic things. So I have no point. I have no. I have no yeah. beef with that. Anybody, you know where to find me. Um, I think a lot of music, especially in South Asian culture, you know, I, I stand for artists. I go to war for artists. Literally, mm-hmm. a lot of music coming out of our community is really bad. Just bad. It's a lot of people that work at Google during the day and then want to go home and have this alternative persona. Mm. and it's just not there fam they're like, just like putting in they're putting in all of the buzzwords like south asian buzzwords you know what i'm saying and, and and you're wearing a sari or you're wearing a dhoti or you're wearing sandals and you think you right. know you, you you on 
respectfully, I respect everybody that has a creative story, but I think it's like, it's just not good. And yeah. I gotta, we gotta be honest about that. Um, I mm-hmm. think a lot of fashion that comes out of, I think a lot of first generation immigrant fashion in general, I'm gonna put this saying in my community on a t-shirt and now I got a fashion brand. It's garbage. Mm-hmm. It's garbage. Yeah. Sorry. We just gotta stop doing that. Like just stop I doing feel that. You. Um, I think there's yeah. brands like Rasta who are doing incredible, you know, work yeah, in terms of so like good. really creating dynamic things, you know, and it's like, yeah, it's hard. What they do is really hard. That's the point. It's supposed to be hard. So I think right. representation has become this thing. It's very two dimensional. You say you're doing it in the name of representation. Boom. It's validated. doesn't have to be good or not. So that's my spicy take. And this does not mm. go to just the South Asian community. People don't need to question my gangster in this in this realm i've, I've mm-hmm. put on for my community in a, for a very long time um people know you know the work that i've done and i say this yeah. with like with an open heart like yo we got to just be better um and just because mm-hmm. you're doing it under representation does not make it good sorry mm-hmm. fam there's a lot of chai yeah. companies that are just not good i hate to say it you know yeah, like who? yeah you know <laughs> yeah you know of course know. you know they know. Nah, um, I'm not gonna call them out, man. I- <laughs> nah, I, 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 I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, I, but I think something that I have to tell myself a lot of time is like, you know, with me, me and Mo both being creative people, and both of us expressing our creativity through. She has her own clothing line, and she's an artist. I write. You know, we, uh, we can deeply analyze. You know, somebody else who's doing the same thing and try to and we can understand how much like love and devotion they really put into it compared to us. But I also think like for the everyday person, I think like, like going back to like me seeing Apu on the Simpsons, like whether he was good or bad, like I just loved seeing it, you know, and especially at a time, like maybe things are different now with there being so much, like you said, but I just remember back then, man, like anything I saw, I was just like, it just made me happy, you know? And so sometimes like with us being creative individuals, we we analyze things really deeply. And I think a lot of times I have to just put myself like to the corner and be like, man, like at least we have it. At least at it's least there point. is this, you know. Um, it's a great so- point. And I want to clarify what I said, too, is like <laughs> I, I think everyone deserves the right to be creative. Right. So yeah. if you have this idea that you're working on, like, please, by all means, develop it. But do not you do not need to publish or 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 go live or be this you 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 put a you ironed on a shirt and now you are a fashion entrepreneur you're on Instagram you're going right. in like I think that's yeah. where the difference is is yeah, like he got someone in his head like he's talking nah <laughs> I, I really I really don't because I don't even be thinking about I don't even be online no more like that but more of yeah. what it is is like I don't I don't want to be like the I don't old man yells at clouds like that's not what I'm doing everybody <laughs> should be creative if they deserve if they want to be because they deserve to be but it's mm-hmm. like you don't necessarily have to go like grow live from with it. everything. Yeah. yeah, like grow, like like put the time in to actually get good at what you're doing and mm-hmm. then bring it to the world. And again, it's that patience thing where I feel like we're just in such a rush to prove, mm-hmm. you know, that that we got it like that. And a lot of times it's garbage and it and it's not it's not it. We got a hot take here it. with the knee. <laughs> you're never Finally, gonna hear this I, anywhere else. I gave it to you guys first. It's exclusive. <laughs> it's off my chest. Let's go. All right, I got one last question before we do the lightning round. So you work with your brother. Mashun and I, we've been together for like three years almost. So what is it like working business with family? Because I know there's like a saying, don't do business, don't travel, and don't live with family because that's where you see like someone's true colors. I think to add on to that just a little bit, the two of us also have siblings. 
And I think sibling relationships is something that a lot of people have very rocky roads with. I would love a little bit of input on like how you've gone about just creating as strong as a bond as possible to where it's just like, you know, you can't let it go. Yeah, I'm going to try to synthesize this as quickly as possible. A, I think um, we owe a lot of credit to our parents for really like nurturing the bond between the two of us, right? My brother and I, I think they were always like, there's not a lot of things that are guaranteed in this world, but your your love as, as brothers can be guaranteed. And mm-hmm. just something that was seeded early on. But at the same time, the reality of working with your family is very difficult. Um, like I mentioned, my brother and I ran an agency together and we argued, beefed, and fought a lot during that time. Um, he was young, and I will go ahead and on the record and say he was immature. He knows he was. <laughs> but I was also immature because I would react to his immaturity, right? We didn't understand each other, um, and we didn't have healthy ways of disagreeing with each other and still finding solutions. We didn't have healthy habits around acknowledging someone's shortcomings and not taking it personally, or we, we just didn't understand each other as well. And uh, we both went to therapy individually for, for different things. And I think what it did was it made us more understanding and having better tools to communicate around frustration and anger. And, and cause when it's family, you don't hold anything back, right? Cause you know that mm-hmm. ultimately they got to be family tomorrow at the end of the day, like you wake up tomorrow, you're still family. And, and that's a good thing, but it's also like, it leads to a lot of, you know, things being said and done that are like, there's no limit, right? Cause, cause there's this implicit understanding that they're not ever going to not be family. So my brother and I today, we have, we have a really healthy, um, enjoyable working relationship. We don't always agree on everything, but that's a product of going through the fire. So a couple of things that I think when working with family is really important is A, I think you have to create accountability and have a constant kind of way to check on that. Because with family, it's like you can let that person slide in ways that you would never let a professional or a friend or someone you hire slide. And so my brother and I are, I'm probably more on this than him. I do not let him slide on anything that he's supposed to be accountable for because I wouldn't let employee five slide. So why would I let my brother slide? Um, the second thing that I think is really important is um, learning how to disagree in a healthy way. Um, not People are not meant to agree on everything. That's normal. Um, in business, there's a lot of things that people see differently on normal. You need to build a cadence, habits, tactics, tools on how you guys can disagree and still find a solution or still move on or still come back to it or bring in more input, whatever it is, you need to, you need to know how to disagree in a healthy way. And the third thing that we are not doing well that we're working on now is um, creating space for things away from work. Uh, mm. Kind of knowing when, Hey, the week is over or, Hey, I'm going to come over, but we're not going to talk about work. We're going to go enjoy it outside or we're going to, we're going to play video games. I don't play video games, but theoretically if I did um just like doing things that are not like hey we are both in the founders mode right now because I work 20 I think about work 20 I live in my work mode 24 7 and he's very like I need time away from that which I respect so we're working on that now but yeah it's it's never easy but I do think it's worth it I think when you get you know whether it's getting money or getting accolades or whatever it is you know whenever you're building something with the people you love the most I think you know, that's like, that's what life 
is and should be you know i think that's like the yeah. one of the most fulfilling things about life so yeah really proud of my brother and proud of how you know far he's taken you know the product and everything that he does at kcc um but you know we had a disagreement yesterday and so you know we we are not really like super talkative this morning because we're still we're still kind of coming back to it after you know we, we disagreed on something and that's normal hmm. yeah it's a hard one especially in south asian families where family dynamic is so overpowering you know yeah. like we 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 were very clear with our rest of our family like yeah this is not a family business like this is my brother <laughs> and i building something i mean mm, your input is funny. not welcome because you don't know what you're talking about and i'll yeah. listen to you and i'll entertain you but this is not like can i get a job for so-and-so's second cousin's second yeah know, uncle no. because yeah. they're unemployed and it's on me now like no that's not what it this is you know mm-hmm. so i make you gotta make difficult uh demarcations at the right time i really like the 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 emphasis on separating work from just being with your brother because i think that's so important especially because uh, as, as a creative i think our minds are always running 24 7 i can always talk to Mashun about the podcast what we can do better but sometimes it's just like you know what this night let's just talk about other stuff and that's really important um and i also like that now that you are your own boss you are kind of spreading out your wins to people that you care and love about and it's it's like you're giving more opportunities with the opportunities that you have you know and i really appreciate that for sure sorry i know i talked a lot no you're good no. you want to move on to the lightning round machine let's do it I, before that um i just want to thank you real quick for yeah all of the like input that you've given all us. the gems um, i think i think you're you're very very wise and i you know, I, I typically have a lot more to say, but I think this whole pod, I've just been very active listening to you. Um, mm-hmm. So thank you for, you know, everything thank that you, you. shared with us. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Again, I don't, I, there's no platform to tell my story if you guys don't invite me on. So it goes two ways. And I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Annie. Cool. All let's right. move on to uh, the lightning round. We just got some silly questions for you. We've talked about goddamn working and whatever we're not gonna talk about work right now we're gonna we're gonna lollygag a little bit i think if you got some spicy takes though so give me some credits <laughs> true true, <laughs> the, true. Fir- the first thing the first thing i want to ask you um is uh you know because i remember i remember when uh when uh jay-z dropped god did the first line he was like the first line i i heard it and i literally thought of Golgotha, and he was like hope did lord forgive me for what the stove did I was like, man, I know he, I know he's gonna say something about that. <laughs> I, I heard it, um, and I knew it was coming. So I just want to ask you, what's your favorite, uh, just rap bar of all time? Favorite rap yeah. bar of all time? First one that yeah. comes to your head. What is your favorite or not? Just some. Oh stuff. my god, that's a really good question. I never thought of it that way. Um, I mean, yeah. you know, Big, Biggie's birth, uh, Biggie's death anniversary was yesterday. Um, it was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazines like that. You know, it's probably not the probably not the answer that I would give on any given day, but today it's like, yeah, it was all a dream. That's a real, that's mm. a real bar, mm. you know, and, and I could relate to that. So probably sure. that. And then um Jay said, you know, uh remind yourself nobody built like you, you designed yourself. And I think that's mm. that's real too. You know, I like so. that. I think a lot of the time it's like it's just like the simple shit that stuck with you. Like something that Nissy said on my favorite song is, is Ocean Views. He said, Man, these these cars are really foreign, like these buildings are really high. And he's just like man like these bills are really high and that's just always stuck with me it's like yeah you know just like that that like man like i always wanted this you know that's a um, great line and it's real yeah i mean nip got yeah. so many of them i don't want to i don't want to get into it right now but 
I could probably yeah. do ten. It's a Nipsey whole other Bob's. episode. <laughs> yeah, just not gonna Nipsey do that Bar- to you guys. Nipsey Bar's not on. gonna do that to you. All right, we know you're a world worldwide traveler. What's your favorite travel destination? Oh my gosh, this is tough. Um, yeah. First, this lightning. You first this thing I can say. I'm gonna say. Don't think about say, this. I'm gonna say Barbados. Uh, mm, I've been there a bunch damn. of times in the last ten years. Uh, Indo Caribbean culture is so is so fascinating, and you know, it's just it's just a beautiful per- place. And so, let's go with Barbados. You ever you ever got to go to a to to South America Latin America? I actually haven't. Man, it's bizarre. I've like not been uh, south man. of Mexico City except Barbados, but no, it's on my mm-hmm. list. Damn, I was in uh, I was in Colombia for five weeks, um, and and it changed my life. I think South America I've is the heard. most underrated like part of the world. I I recommend Say no it more. to everybody. Say no more. Yeah. Say that. <laughs> Make it happen. He's booking it for next month already. <laughs> Say that. I travel a ton and I don't even talk. I don't post it. I don't share it. So it's like yeah. it's this weird thing where I think travel. Yeah, uh, I'm definitely. I'm. I'm happy you guys asked that question. Yeah, yeah, of course. All right, favorite I, Jaff flavor. Uh, signature masala. Just, mm, just I think that's yeah. mine too. Yeah, yeah. Back yeah, to the basics. Real. Basic classic mm-hmm. on it for sure. Um, our last one. Um, I know you said you work twenty four seven, but I don't care if you said that or not. What is like <laughs> your go to like New York City leisure activity? Like it's Friday night, it's six p.m. You got none to do. Like there's nothing. Like Saturday is free nothing what are you doing friday night see that's not true um but <laughs> if it was true hypothetically friday night at 6 p.m what am i doing um i'm going to see my homies dj dj somewhere you know double house mm. or wherever they're at like i'm, mm. I'm participating in, in culture um but then saturday morning me and my homies are gonna go play golf so there's there's a little there bit of that uh, that that i'll indulge in but yeah for me leisure is travel playing golf or just just being you know somewhere else I like that you go out and then the next morning you kind of like detox and have a go out golf golf activity. Yeah. <laughs> that's that. that's what that's the old the old man life, but you know I'm embracing it. So it's good. a good balance, good balance. All right, Mashun, you know, <sighs> you know, we do our ten second advice. The thing about Mashun is though he yeah. he takes four hours to find his advice and then it, that's he, not he tells it You're in like a, a good fifteen minutes. So let's You're try to think liar. of some ten second advice for all of us, Mashun. You can go first. I'm not gonna give advice. I'm just going to give the uh, the the Nipsey Hustle quote that I butchered before because I got it pulled up now. So in case y'all still <laughs> listening, y'all y'all wondering what the hell I was even talking about, I'm trying to tell you right now. The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable man persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress and evolution depends on the unreasonable man. Mm. I love that. I remember when I first heard it. It's it's always stuck, except for now. But the concept has always stuck. And, mm-hmm. you know, I always ask myself, like, is this going to work? Is this not going to work? And I think you just got to tell yourself, like, like, who cares? Like, just just do you. And whatever happens, it was meant to happen. I'm really happy you mentioned that, man. That's beautiful. Thank you. I mean, you, you got 10 second off? advice. Nah, no, she's I'll, asking I'll... you because she don't got nothing. <laughs> she literally don't. Nah, go ahead. What you got? <laughs> No, mine, I want Malia to go first because I feel like I've been talking this whole time. Fine, <laughs> fine. I'll I'll go first just to get like actually 10 seconds out. I think mine is, is it's natural to not know everything and it's natural to not have everything figured out. But don't let that 
stop you from reaching your full potential learn from other people that are smarter than you don't use that as like a a way to be jealous about them and just hate on them but you know learn and just keep going even if there is failure and if there is unknowingness so um, i would add yeah i would just add know the difference between when someone is giving you advice and when someone is projecting their fears onto you Mm, those are good ones two different things that often come in the same form of as advice but they're very different that's fine that's a good one i like that cool man um ani thank thank you so much this was an amazing time and i've personally gotten a lot out of this i hope everybody listening gets a lot out of this um where where can they find you uh at coca the chai no um, i'm i'm at ani hustles across all socials coca the chai third street and b we are opening a second cafe in soho very soon the first time i said it publicly that's amazing congrats god willing so we'll see but uh i can't give the address yet but but soon enough Mm -hmm. so yeah find me in the city find me at coca the chai oh that's amazing congrats it's gonna be a little bit closer than taking the train and then walking a few blocks <laughs> absolutely but yeah thank you thank you so much for giving us your time we know that you're busy we've been trying to do this for like seven months now so we really appreciate you coming on for like an hour and a half you know yeah. thank you guys for thoughtful questions and all that please edit cut me out while i was chatting too much but i appreciate no, you were keeping it all thank you everybody for listening um we'll have links to everything in the description um follow us yeah. rate us review us all that good stuff thank you guys and uh, we love you guys. Allah Hafiz. Allah Hafiz. <laughs>